If everyone has a Bible, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 16. Typically, my message is usually what I call text-driven. I'm going to teach a text and stay with what the text is saying. I may not stay with that. I may give some other verses. But tonight, it's going to be a little more topical. So for the next couple weeks, I want to talk about what is the church and what is the purpose of a church. So we'll start reading here in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 18. And when Jesus, verse 13, came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And also I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth, thou shalt be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth, thou shalt be loosed in heaven. And then he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. So I think that it's important for all of us to understand why we meet and the multifaceted purposes of why we meet. Because it's not just one or two. So we don't gather together. We don't have a church. There's not just one or two purposes to us having a church here in Shelbyville. So in case you are wondering, and I don't know that you are, but God hasn't called us to follow Christ alone. So he calls us to follow Christ with a particular group of people, as we shall see. So as some have found out here along the way, when you leave a church or leave the pack, if you want to put it that way, and try to make it on your own, what ends up happening there are Christians and people that are out there on their own, so to speak, going to follow Jesus by themselves. There's no safety net to catch you. There's no teaching to convict you. There's no fellowship to encourage or correct you. There's no one praying for you. You lose that sense of belonging. And really what you become, if you study that, you know, when the wolves or whoever go after a pack of gazelles, who are the ones they attack? It's always the weak one, the one that's straying, the one that's not with the pack. They're the first ones that get killed. And that's just the way it is. And even mountain climbers, you know, for safety reasons, what do they do? They tie off ropes to one another so that if one of them falls, the rest of them are there to hold them up. And it gives that other mountain climber an opportunity to regain his footing and start climbing again. And that's the way our church should be like, that when one of the members slips and falls, the others should be able to hold him up until he can regain his footing. And how are we all roped together? By the Holy Spirit, by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that bond. But the problem is... America is founded on what? What spirit permeates our society? And from its conception, it's been this way. We have a spirit of individualism in this country, more so than other countries when you go visit them. And we tend to do in America what benefits us first, because we like to think of ourselves as the rugged pioneers that don't need any help. We can do it on our own. And I even had someone tell me once, there was a Christian that if they never had any fellowship for the rest of their lives, they'd be fine with that. And I would say, you can say that, but biblically, can you really say that as a Christian? Does the New Testament present Lone Ranger Christians? 
And so I'd like to talk tonight about what it means and the need to belong to a local church. But the first question that I want to answer is, what is a church? What is a church? So I had to write a paper at the seminary when I went there, and the title of the paper was The Irreducible Ecclesiological Minimum for a Church. Now, before you get too impressed with that, really, that's just a fancy way of saying, what are the basic requirements for having a church? <laughs> I mean, so this is what I had to title it. In other words, what's the least you can do and still call it a church? What's the basic requirements? And so think for a second, because this is what I had to do in class when it was presented. Think about what do you think are the basic things? What would make a church? How would you answer that question? Because that's what we had to do in class. And you answer it and you realize after you start thinking about things, well, wait a minute, I, that was, my first answer really wasn't a very good answer. So, you know, some people, they would just say church, it's just a collective noun. In other words, you know, you have one sheep, but when you have a lot of them together, you have a flock, right? Or you have a cow, and a lot of them together become a herd. Or one goose, but when you get a lot of geese together, you have a gaggle. And so some people were like, well, you got one Christian, and when you get more than one of them together, you have the church. I mean, that's sort of right, but not really. I mean, that's really not a very good way of looking at it. When I go to prison, literally there'll be five guys sitting under a tree discussing the book of Exodus, and they consider that to be church. So is that a church? Or... Four women getting together, having prayer meeting, discussing a book. Is that church? Or a lot of people <laughs> will say, you know, I've just got my family. It's just me and my family. We get together and we sing songs, we read a verse, and Dad shares something about that verse. And is that a church? You know, because a lot of people will say, I was just over at such and such, and we were having church. Well, we know what they're saying, right? And <laughs> will probably literally mean that. But is that scriptural? So for some people, the church is the building, it's the Sunday morning service, it's a denomination, or it's all Christians everywhere. Now, at least with that answer, all Christians everywhere, there is some scriptural basis for that. The verse we just read, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And I think he's talking there about the overall church, not a local church in that sense. And in Ephesians 5.25, Paul wrote, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might present it to himself and so on and so forth. But honestly, outside of Ephesians and Colossians and a few scriptures, just a handful of scriptures, predominantly when the reference is made to the church in the New Testament, it is talking about a local gathering of Christians, not the universal church. So our English word church comes from the German word kirke, which it comes from a Greek word kuriakon, and that means the Lord's house because it's a deviation. They've combined two Greek words. Kurios means Lord, and the word for house, I don't remember the exact word because it's not the typical word used for house, but what it means is the Lord's house, and it became known as the building that was set aside as the meeting place for believers. So their presence there sanctified the building to where it became, quote-unquote, the Lord's house. And we still use that terminology about the church being the Lord's house from this German-English word. It's not New Testament. But we'll say we're going to church. 
I'll meet you at church, or we need to fix up the church. And when we say we need to fix up the church, we don't mean we're going to give people showers and new clothes. We mean we're going to paint the outside like we're going to do here and fix up the entrance, right? But the intended meaning in the New Testament, the intended meaning has nothing to do with a building. So the New Testament word for church is ekklesia. And that's taken from two Greek words, kaleo, which means to call, and ek means out. To call out, ecclesia, to call out, to be an assembly, a group of people that is called out. And prior to that word being used in the New Testament, it was to describe any assembly of people that got together. And typically it was for political reasons. People would gather and get together and assemble for political reasons. And that actually is the case that's used that way in Acts 19. When they got mad at Paul because he was talking about Diana, a crowd gathered in the theater, the forum, and it's called an assembly, an ecclesia. Now, it wasn't the church. This is a bunch of angry heathens that are getting ready to tear up the apostle Paul. But that's the idea behind the word. So the New Testament usage, though, of ecclesia is the assembly or church. It's a body of people who have been called out from the world by God's grace to serve together. And those local churches that we're talking about, they have a definite, in the New Testament, a definite geographical location. They're composed of people that are from a different kingdom. So they're composed of people that aren't Shelbyville. We're from a different kingdom. We're from God's kingdom now. But we also have a citizenship where? Here in America, here in Shelbyville, here in the state of Kentucky. So we're like... Caleb and Megan, they just had a baby. He was telling me the other day, that baby, that girl has dual citizenship. She's American and Guatemalan at the same time, and that's the same way it is with us. But our first allegiance, is, we all know this, right, is to which kingdom? The kingdom of God and our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has our supreme allegiance, but we're also, the New Testament teaches Romans 13, we pray for and obey, and we are good citizens of this earthly kingdom whether it's America, Kentucky, or Shelbyville. And we'll do what they say as long as they don't ask us to violate our conscience. And they don't ask us to violate the word of God, right? And to violate our king, our true king. Other than that, we'll do everything they say. But the New Testament Christians, they belong to local churches with geographical locations. That is the majority of the case the word church is used. If you would, turn over to 1 Corinthians. I just want to go on. I could quote these, and there's not much to them, but I think it's important to see at the beginning of these epistles when Paul writes, he's writing to churches at locations. So 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, and he says here in verse 2, Unto the church of God, what does he add? Which is at Corinth. To them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And he says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 1, but if you would turn over to Galatians 1, and we'll see how he opens that letter. Galatians 1, beginning in verse 1, he writes, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren which are with me. And how does he end verse 2? Unto the churches 
of Galatia because Galatia was a region, but that region had local churches there, and that's who he's writing to. And over in Ephesians 1, the next book over from that, he begins that by writing, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints, where? Which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So we are called what? What is the name of our church here? Shelbyville Christian Assembly. We have a definite geographical location, and that is Shelbyville, right? So we're not called the Universal Christian Assembly. So that importance of that, of that local and geographical location, it's seen in Paul's metaphor that he uses in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 of the church as the body of Christ. A body. And let me ask you, can your body be partly in Shelbyville, partly in Chicago, partly in Brazil, and still be functioning is a question we have to ask ourselves. So if your eyeballs are in Madrid and your feet are in Portland, you're going to be walking in the walls. That's what's going to happen. So in order for the church to minister to itself through the many gifts that are described in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, it has to be a group of believers like we have here tonight meeting in a, I'll say it again, specific geographical location. So to show this, turn over to 1 Corinthians 11. I don't know how much we know that this right here is the church. We're not part of the church. I'm saying there is the universal church. There's the, that concept is in the New Testament. I'm not saying it's not there. But predominantly, locally, we are a church. We're not part of the church. We're not, you know, we're missing part of the church because some of it's somewhere else. We are the church. Okay? We just saw he wrote letters to the church. He didn't say the partial church in Corinth or the partial church. He said to the church which is in Corinth, the assembly of people gathered together there. And so look in 1 Corinthians 11 and verses 17 to 18. It says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, what does he say? When you come together. So he's writing to the church at Corinth. And he's telling them, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and partly I believe it. And so I'm reading that from the King James. If you have any other translation, it's going to say, as a church. Because in the church, in the King James, is not a very good translation of what he's saying there. There's no the in the Greek, in the church. He's saying, when you come together as a church, as an assembly. So he's saying, this is a church. We're church right now. This is the point I'm trying to make. They came together as a church. And when you look down in verse 20 there, that was verses 17 and 18. Look what else he says. He says, and again, when you come together, therefore, where? Into one place. So the church is gathered together locally into one place. That is the church that he's talking about there. And that is the context. So when you read passages, you have to read things in context. You can't just pick certain verses out, have them out of context, and say, well, this is what something means. That's dangerous. That's how cults get formed. So you have to read things in context. The whole context of 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, and 14, he is writing to the local church as they are gathered together as the local church. 
That's who he's addressing here when he talks about the church being a body and how they're supposed to meet and conduct themselves. It's a metaphor. So when we come over here to chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and read through verses 14 to 26, that's the context. And he says in verse 14, beginning there, For the body is not one member, but many. And if the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Or if the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? And if the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now God has set the members, every one of them, in the body as it has pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now there are many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable... Upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God has tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. And I would just say, is he writing about the universal church in 1 Corinthians 12? Because he talks about one member saying to another, saying to another, I have no need of you. And I'm saying that would be hard to do with somebody I have never seen that lives somewhere else. And when he talks about bestowing more abundant honor on the less honorable parts, how do I do that with somebody that lives in another country? How do I bestow more honor on the less honorable parts with someone that lives somewhere else? I can do that here. I can do both of the things I just talked about here. And when he also says that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another, verse 25, to me that is the clear language of a local church is what he's referring to. I can do that here. Have the same care one member for another. So, to me, it clears up any doubt what he's talking about as far as referring to the local church as being the body of Christ. He's using a metaphor to describe how the local church interacts with each other. That's what this whole point is all about. But you look in verse 27. We read through 26. And look what Paul says in verse 27. And he's addressing the church that he wrote to. We looked at it at 1 Corinthians 1-2, the church at Corinth. And how does he address them? He says, now you, talking to the church there, you are the body of Christ. Well, who else? It's who he's writing to, isn't it? The local church. You are the body of Christ and members in particular. And he would write the same thing to the church at Rome, to the church at Galatia, to the church at Ephesus. If he was writing a letter to us here in Shelbyville Christian Assembly, he would say the same thing. Now you are the body of Christ. It's pretty clear to me. So we're saying we're still taking things in context. If you read the rest of his language in 1 Corinthians 14, he's showing that he is speaking to the Corinthian church, ministering to itself. So we'll move on. We were at 1227 and 1 Corinthians 14, 5. He says this. 
Paul writes, I would that you all spake with tongues. So I'm saying this whole letter, this whole part of this letter is he is trying to teach them how to manifest the gifts and how to show love to one another with the gifts. And he says, verse 5, I would that you all spake with tongues, but rather that you prophesied, for greater is he that prophesied than he that speak with tongues, except he interpret. And what does he say there? That the church might receive edifying. So let me ask you, if somebody here today, tonight, prophesied, who is going to receive edifying from that? Which church? A church in Oklahoma? They can't hear it. So he's referring to the church that is at Corinth. So look down in verse 12 of chapter 14. He said, Even so ye, for as much as you would be zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. So what church is he talking about there that we seek to have the gifts that we can edify it? He's talking about the church there in Corinth. Who else? Look down in verse 23. And what does he say there? If therefore, does he say a part of the church? What does he say in verse 23? If the whole church, what? Become together where? In one place. There is no way we're going to get all the Christians in this world into one place, okay? And does he say, am I not reading this right? I'm sensing that people are not liking what I'm saying. But look what he says. If therefore the whole church become together in one place. The whole church in one place. The church at Corinth. So move on to verse 26 finally. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, he says, How is it then, brethren, when you come together? He's talking to the people at Corinth. Every one of you has a psalm, has a doctrine, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. He says, Let all things be done unto edifying. And if any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. Verse 28, But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence where? In the church, he's talking about the local church. So you can run the references yourself, get a concordance, however you want to do it. The church, though, when it is spoken about in the New Testament, is mainly spoken of a local gathering of God's people in a specified location. Because here's the problem that we start running into when we say that this is not a church, is we have things popping up now like Internet churches. Because, well, it's not in one place. And there are people out there, there's a... A Chinese guy that he has got an internet church. And so you join his church by getting on the internet. And you go to church with a screen in front of you. Now tell me, how do you minister to your brothers and sisters through a computer monitor? How does that happen? Or I've attended multi-site churches, quote unquote, with the pastor that the churches are spread out all over a city. And the people on one part of the town, they never see the people on the other part of the town. How does that work that they minister to one another? And I'm saying, but yet I, I can understand how all this works. The metaphor applies when it's with a group of people that I'm be, right here looking at. So when you start saying that a computer screen is an acceptable substitute for meeting with flesh and blood brothers and sisters, that is the strong delusion at its beginning. It really is. So I had a lot of seminary students that told me this. 
this is a little bit beside the point, but not really. And I would talk to some of these guys that are in their 30s or whatever, uh, and they would tell me, I really have trouble talking to people. And I'd be like, how is that? You're going to be pastor in a church, and you have trouble talking to people, and you can't relate to people? And they're like, because I'm on my phone all the time, or I spent a lot of time on my computer. And my social skills are bad. I'm saying, I didn't ask them. I didn't say, hey, are your social skills bad? Are you in a computer? They're volunteering this. I mean, that's just two or three of them that would tell me that. So the church is right here with us, flesh and blood, looking at each other, fellowshipping, talking. It's like books. I mean, I've got books on my iPad. I want something I can hold and smell and feel. It's the same with people. I don't want a church on a screen. So, look, I'm not talking about if you can't make it here and you're watching on, so no problem. I'm not talking about that, okay? I'm talking about when you're choosing what your church is going to be and how you're going to relate and what your idea of a church is, okay? There's a lot of metaphors that are used to describe what the church is. It's called a temple we grow up and minister to each other. The stones are ministering to each other. I can't minister to a stone that's halfway around the world. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. I'm not saying those people aren't our brothers. I'm not saying that we can't pray for them. We pray for the persecuted brethren every Thursday night. And I'm not saying we can't help some, a group out financially or even minister with them. So I'm not saying any of that. But I'm saying this is the church typically in the New Testament is what we have right here. And that's the way the Bible describes it. Go through the book of Acts with a concordance and look at church and see what you find out. Because look, when the church in Jerusalem was having problems because they were going through a famine and they were having a hard time, what did Paul say? He said, you other churches, you should be willing to help them out. I'm all for that. We should. They are our brothers and sisters. And one day we will all be united in one big happy church. The kingdom of God manifested. That's the way it's going to happen. But for right now, this is supremely the way the New Testament describes what the church is, which is what I wanted to talk about tonight. As I started to say before you all got me sidetracked is Paul uses many metaphors. And one of them he uses, he talks about the church being a household. And so in 1 Timothy 3.15, he says that you will know how to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And a successful household is characterized by two qualities that are essential to the definition of a local church. And you know what that is? A successful household. Love and commitment to each other. And that's why being involved in a local church is crucial and biblical. And why crucial? And here's the idea, because it's God's idea and plan. So God is ordained, so we're talking this under the umbrella of the metaphor of the church is the household of God. And he's ordained that people interact. That's how he's ordained us, that's how he's made us. Even his own nature, the triune nature of God, he's not just like the Muslims have, just the solitary father. No, we have a triune God that interacts. And we're made in his image. And so he didn't just make Adam and stop. He could have. Or he could have just made a bunch of men. We could all be men. Wouldn't that be exciting? But what did he do? He created Eve. 
There's fellowship starting right away. And then what did he tell them to do? Y'all are going to have to interact and have children. And then what do you have as a result of that? You've got a family, a household. And he says it's, we're the household of God. We're the family of God gathered together. And households have to learn how to interact. And if your household's anything like mine, not one of my kids are the same. They're all different. And that's the way God did it. So that people were interacting. When he called Abraham, he didn't just call Abraham. Mr. Lone Ranger Abraham, did he? He called Abraham and he called his family with him. He said this of Abraham, God did. He says, for I know him, Abraham, that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. He said he will command his children and his household. And it multiplied on out from Abraham, didn't it? It got to where the children of Israel, the whole nation of Egypt's worried that they might take them over. That's a lot of interaction there. <laughs> so when God calls his people, it's a people, it's a group, it's an assembly. He led Israel out of Egypt as a nation. He didn't just lead them out as individuals. So he's always been about corporate involvement. I'm saying that's why it's crucial to be involved in a local assembly and not just skipping around from one to the other. Because you can do that, you can miss out on all kinds of involvement and all kinds of growth and all kinds of people being concerned and praying for you and all kinds of people watching your life to see whether you're in sin or not. And maybe you need to be rebuked when you're just jumping around. I don't know, I've heard more times than I care to remember prisoners that tell me I'm following Jesus on my own. I just don't like the people in the chapel. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I go in there every week. I've met a lot of people that are really sincere Christians that fellowship with one another, that pray with one another. And I don't know how, well, you're going to do this on your own. And, and not only that, I don't see that in the Bible. To just be a lone ranger Christian, I just don't see that. Because how did our Lord Jesus Christ say... The world will know that we are Christians. How did he say? By attending conferences, by evangelistic campaigns, by feeding the poor, by building houses. Is that how the Lord said the world will know that we are Christians? And all of those things can be useful and good. I'm not criticizing any of that. But the Lord said this in John 13, 35. He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. And when you go and look through the Bible and put all the one another passages together, it's mainly talking about the local church with each other. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. And I would say love can't be worked out apart from a local assembly. And we find that out. Just like you got a household of people together, where nobody's able to take a vacation every week and you're all there together, you're going to have to work out loving each other, aren't you? Or you're all going to be miserable is the way that is. And it's the same, I'm saying. Yeah, that's what this local assembly is all about. Love's not worked out with somebody that you just interact with occasionally. And the New Testament assumes, it's an assumption there that you will be part of a local assembly. It's all through when you read the New Testament. And for example, James 2.2, 2, he says this, for if there come into your assembly, James writes, a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. And he goes on to talk about 
these Christians that are meeting together, y'all are going to have to work out your seating arrangements. I mean, we have that issue here. Don't sit in somebody. See, I was just telling somebody, I said, man, it is too funny. So when my brother was here, he used to sometimes on purpose, he'd tell me he'd go sit in somebody's seat just to see what kind of reaction he could get out of them. Well, that's my brother. But that's what they had to do. That's assuming that you're going to be in a local assembly. And he says, when the rich guy comes, are you going to stick him up front because he's rich and you're going to tell the poor guy to go in the back? He's like, that's not showing love. And I'm saying, so love has to be worked out, is my point, in a local assembly. And James goes on to say in chapter 2 that if you see a brother that has need of food, he says, you can't just say be warmed and filled, not when you have the means to meet that. How are you going to know a brother needs food if you're not part of a local assembly and you're around them and you're talking with them and you're fellowshipping with them. That's how you find out about needs, isn't it? So I'm saying the New Testament assumes that you're going to be part of a local church. And I still haven't lost my point. What is a church? What is the minimum requirement for a church? We'll get to that here shortly. But we've established that the church in the New Testament is composed of a local assembly of people Spiritually united to Christ as their head, and they're lovingly committed to serving him and each other. That much of it we got established, I believe. But God is not the God of confusion, is he? So there has to be structure, purpose, and leadership to this group of people that are gathered together. We're talking about what will make up a church, what is a church. So God-ordained leadership was established as part of the New Testament church from the beginning. Now, when the early church, when it was started in Jerusalem, the apostles were the leaders and pastors when they met there. And the church that met then, it, it was simple what they did. And we taught a whole series on it, Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. But that didn't last real long because you don't get very far in the book of Acts and things start to get a little complicated. So you get into Acts chapter 6. And you got a little bit of a skirmish going on there. Some of the saints are being neglected. They're saying, ah, because they're Greek-speaking Jews, our widows are being neglected. They're not getting any food, and they're going hungry. And there's nothing worse than a skinny widow. And so they say, you, you all have to do something about that, right? And so what happened? That's when you first see the office of deacon is established because the apostles are like, it's not suitable for us to go serve tables and to neglect the word. Find out. Look out amongst yourselves. How can you do that too when you think about that? He said, look out from amongst yourselves and choose seven people. The apostles didn't choose them. The people chose them. And how can you do that if you don't know who's in your congregation? And that's what happened. They picked out several people and those became the deacons. And as the church was spread to other lands, so we're talking they had to have deacons and elders, during Paul's first missionary journey, he appointed elders over every church he began. And in, if you could turn to Acts 14, I want you to see that. Just to show you that it's an essential part of the church. So we have deacons already by Acts 6, and we have elders being appointed on brand new churches in Acts 14. And so Acts 14, beginning in verse 21, it says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city... And had taught many, they returned again to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. 
And look at verse 23. And when they, this is talking about Paul, when they had ordained them elders, where? In every church, every local church, and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they had believed. So I'm saying there's two offices in the church. And it's funny that Paul addresses these two offices at the beginning of the letter he wrote to the Philippians. You don't have to turn to it, but Philippians 1.1, Paul wrote this, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, and he says, with the bishops and deacons. Now that's funny. He addresses the deacons because they're important. So pastors and deacons are so important to the structure of the church and the well-being of the church that Paul lays out the requirements of them in 1 Timothy 3, and they're stringent. High expectations put on the pastors and the deacons. I can't assume from what I've been told, and it's right, I can't assume everybody knows. A lot of us have heard this before. But the term elder, pastor, and bishop, they're all interchangeable. They speak of the same office as the pastor. Critical to the New Testament church. So in Acts 20, Paul exhorted the elders, the pastors of Ephesus, to feed the flock of God, which had been, they had been given responsibility over. And he also further charged them, he says, you are the ones that have to watch out for error creeping in here and deal with it. Because they said, of your own midst, out of the assembly, there are going to come people bringing in errors and heresy, wolves seeking to devour the flock. You've got to be watching out for them, pastor, is what he's saying, and deal with it. Part of the responsibility. So the pastor, though, I would say this, has no authority in himself. Where does the pastor's authority come from? In other words, I don't have any authority to tell you guys what brand of cereal to be eating, where to take your vacations at, what kind of home to live in. Do I have that kind of authority? Everyone say no. Thank you. I don't even want that kind of authority. No way. But his authority comes from where? It comes from the Word of God, doesn't it? That's where it comes from. I just heard a message about it. So the church, the church we've taught, you all are under the authority of the Word of God, right? And the pastor is supposed to be God's messenger bringing that Word. So there, you're under that authority of the Word. And if the pastor is bringing the Word of God, you are under that authority because it's the Word of God, not because... The pastor is who he is. Does that make sense? <laughs> That's what the Bible teaches. So listen, only as the pastor preaches the word of God is the congregation obligated to follow. You're not obligated to follow something that's not the word. That's not the way it works. We're not a cult here. And Peter likewise encouraged pastors when he said this. He said, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre's sake, but of a ready mind. So a pastor's got to be overseeing a flock with oversight, not being because he's compelled to do it, not because he wants to see how much money he can get out of the people. That's not a good reason. But Hebrews 13, 17 tells us that pastors are to watch for the souls of their flocks. And there again, we're back to what is a church? It's a localized congregation. Otherwise, I'm not responsible for anything outside of these walls, or there's a few people that just aren't here tonight. But you know what I'm saying. I'm not responsible for the people to go to these other churches. 
in either in this city, other cities, or anywhere else. I have no authority over them. This is the church that I would have authority over, and you all have authority, in a sense, over each other. Because when we had to put somebody out of this church, you go back and read 1 Corinthians 5, the church is involved. That's just not a leadership thing. Everyone's involved in that. And if I'm in error, you all have a responsibility to come up and deal with that. If it's too bad, you all need to be a responsibility. Say, you got to get out of the pulpit, my friend. That's your all's responsibility. So you all need to be reading your Bibles like you've been doing so you can catch. You didn't quite quote that verse right the other day. <laughs> and that's the way it works. So the two offices, I'm saying, specified in the New Testament are those of pastor and deacon and no others. But listen, talking about the deacons, I'm not going into a lot of detail on all this, maybe another time, but the deacons are given no authority. They have no authority, so to speak, in the church. But... When you look at the requirements, they're godly men who are chosen to assist the elders by performing tasks of service. They free the elders up to spend time praying and studying the word. That's what it said. You go back and read Acts 6. And if you look at the qualifications for a deacon, they are not required to teach. But let me say this. It's no small office to be a deacon. 1 Timothy 3.13 says, They that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So listen, he's saying there that deacons that are faithful will be blessed by God and given a good position in the church and boldness in their ministries. And I'll tell you, when you read who the first deacons were that were named, two of them, it happens in Acts 6, and you see two of them in action in Acts 7 and Acts 8. Stephen was one of the first deacons. And it's saying it gives them boldness, one of the things that will happen, boldness in their ministries. And listen to what it says about Stephen. Stephen, the deacon, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. And you go on and you read Acts 8, and right there we got deacon number 2. It says God will bless their ministry and give them good standing. And these men that were chosen were deacons. They said, you look for people that have faith and a holy life. And Philip goes down, and man, he's the one that preaches to Samaria. Miracles are happening with Philip, the deacon. So it's no put down to say deacons don't have authority in the church. No, no, God will bless them when they do what they're supposed to do. And so for those of you that are new here, we have two deacons in the church, Terry and James. They're both deacons. And I'm saying from the time I've been pastor, they both have been extremely helpful and humble. I mean, things happen where I get a text that this and that was taken care of. I didn't have to mess with it. I really appreciate that. And they help you guys in ways you don't know about. So, as it stands right now, I'm the only elder. So I know there's been some confusion about that. As far as I'm concerned, Leonard was named elder. He still is an elder. He will, I believe, one day be up here preaching again and functioning as an elder. You can read 1 Timothy 3, and it'll tell you these are the requirements for an elder. Now, we have an advisory board, and there's some confusion. on They are not elders. They're an advisory board. Okay? Because I think some people think that the advisory board are elders. They're not elders. But they're helpful. They've been helpful to me. We meet. I can bounce things off of them, get their advice. Advisory board. And that's been very helpful. But there's two offices, 
the elders and the deacon. And I'm not going to address the whole thing about can you have more than one elder. We have more than one elder. I think you need to have a senior pastor and you can have other pastors and elders as the need arises to help out and to take some of that load off. So there's people now teaching you have to have a plurality of elders in a church. I don't know that you have to have, but I don't know that there's anything wrong with it either. That you just have to have one person being the elder of the church. So we're talking about the elders. The other thing is there's two ordinances that are established in the New Testament. And does anyone know what those are, the two ordinances? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the two New Testament ordinances that are part of a New Testament church. So I know no one's going to argue about either one of those. I mean, the New Testament clearly instructs that when you make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, you're baptized as a symbol of that union with the Lord and your intention to be part of the body. That's part of it. And I'm going to teach on that here shortly because we're getting ready to have some baptism when our new baptismal arrives. Take place right here in living color. So Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. And we know that to be, when you see how that was acted out in the book of Acts, how they enacted that, they baptized every time in the name of Jesus, which is how we baptize here. Acts 2.38, Peter said, And when they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So that's one ordinance that's part of a church. Baptism is part of it. The other one, the second ordinance, is established by the Lord Jesus right before his death, and that is the Lord's Supper. And that is expected to be practiced by any church that is a New Testament church. So twice in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells them, he exhorts them about practicing properly the Lord's Supper. He also says this, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and on and on. But he said, I received of the Lord and delivered it unto you, that this is something you should practice. And he's telling them, you've got to make sure you practice it in the right way, because they were having problems with that. So the other part I want to talk about is in order to fulfill the purpose of a church, God has ordained the church as the body of Christ. Now, we've talked about that some, but that it should minister to itself as well as to the world. So Paul declares in Romans, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body as he desired. We've always talked about that here, that God would send the people that need to be here, that need to be part of this body, that we have the feet we need, or the arm, that he'll send them here, they become part of our body, that we'll be complete, or bring back somebody that's left. That's 1 Corinthians. But also, what we need to understand, what I want to say about this is, we're talking about what constitutes a church. Brother Hamilton would preach on this, and it seems like nothing would change. But each member has a gift I don't think everybody really thinks that's that big a deal. But everybody that is a member of this church has a gift, according to the Bible, to contribute to the body. Everyone. If you're 10 years old and saved and baptized and consider yourself part of this body, you have a gift. Romans 12 says this, For we as many members in one body and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ and everyone members of another. And listen to what he ends up saying. Having then gifts differing according to the grace 
that is given us. So everybody has some kind of gift that will minister to this church. We just need to take that seriously because really, honestly, I know how it is. It's just easy to come and be a spectator, but that's not what the Bible teaches. We have a responsibility and a role to participate in this church service. And if you would, please just turn back. We already looked at this, but I'd like you to turn back in light of what I've said to 1 Corinthians 14. So I'm saying we tend to think of operating the gifts as being optional. But 1 Corinthians 14, 12, again, he says, Even so ye, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, what does he say there? Seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. It's an imperative there, that word seek. We're to be operating the gifts and to be seeking to excel. Why? Not for our own glory, not to, for, for any other reason, but to build the church up. It's not optional. When you go back down again and read verse 26, Paul's saying, hey, listen, how is it then, brethren, when you come together, when we come together like we are tonight or like we will on Sunday, he says, every one of you. He's not leaving anyone out, is he? When you say that, saying every one of you has something to bring. That's what we should be having, something to bring. Has a psalm, has a doctrine, a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. That doesn't mean you have to have something every meeting, but we need to get back to where we're praying, God, use me. Or you read something and the Lord impresses it on you, I'm going to bring, I'm going to share that with the church. So we don't need people to be dominating the meeting, trying to control the meeting. We understand all that, right? But it's because he ends that by saying, let all things be done to edifying. Is God, can I share this in a way that is going to edify the church? Use me in that way, because these brothers and sisters, they're part of my body. And we need to help and look at it that way and be willing to help each other out. So you just don't get the sense when you read through these verses that participation is optional. Do you get that sense that it's optional? But when a church meets that basic requirement that I talked about, that it's a household and that a household loves and is committed to each other, then all the members there, when you have that and you see that that is what a church is, that's what I'm committed to. What is a church? a household that is loves and committed to each other, and then when you have that, you will seek to abound to the edification of the church. You'll want to do that. Also, the last thing, will the church minister to itself in love, but also to the world? So the mission of Jesus is to be the mission of the church, to seek and save the lost. And that's outside of these doors here, but that's us as a church going outside of these doors. And so the command of the Lord was to the church to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. In the Great Commission, I'm not spending a lot of time on that, not because it's not important, but I'll talk about it later. But the Great Commission has never been taken back. He isn't like, well, that was for a while, but you all don't have to worry about that anymore. That's for all of us there. So in conclusion, to answer the question that we started with, what is the irreducible ecclesiological minimum? What is that? Get back to that. What is the least you can have and still call it a church? So based on everything I just looked at, maybe you kind of labored at it, but what we just looked at, here is my answer to that. Here's what I wrote in my paper. A local church is an organized body of baptized believers 
led by a spiritually qualified shepherd, affirming their loving relationship to the Lord Jesus and to each other by regular observance of the Lord's Supper, committed to the authority of the Word of God, gathering regularly for worship, which includes the edification of each other through the gifts given by the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel to the world by each member. And you're like, I thought it was going to be minimum. <laughs> well, that is minimum. You catch all that, get the tape, get the MP3, whatever it is, and go back and listen to it if you want to. But that's what it's all about. Organized body of baptized believers led by a qualified shepherd affirming their loving relationship to the Lord Jesus and to each other by regular observance of the Lord's Supper. We're committed to the authority of the Word of God and we gather regularly for worship which includes the edification of each other through the gifts given by the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel to the world by each member. So listen, the size or number of what constitutes a true church is never given in the Bible. But I will say it would seem to me that a husband and wife and their kids doesn't fit the New Testament pattern. But whether you have to add one more family, five more families, or ten to qualify, it doesn't say. So the impression that you get from reading the New Testament is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that will build his church. And if it's a work of the Lord, it will grow into a properly functioning church. And the Holy Spirit will add to that church as many as pleases him. I talked to guys at the seminary that they went out and they did start with nothing but their family. And it was, wasn't long before it went a while. There's 25 people. But because God's hand was in it, next thing you know, the guy's like, I had 200 members coming there. But he faithfully preached the word and observed everything we just talked about. And they evangelized. That's how, you know, people didn't just buy off. Most just knock on his door and say, I was led to come here. No, they evangelized. But that's what will happen. What that does is, when you look at what is the basic requirements for a church, it strips away most of what we see in American churches. And the question becomes, do we really need all of what has been added to the New Testament pattern? It's so basic. And has it really benefited the church? You, know, you try to take our church model over to Africa and make them like us with a building like us and the the sound equipment and all that other, and those people can't afford all that. Does that mean they can't be a church? That's why I'm talking about what is the church? What is the minimum requirement to have a church according to the New Testament? So, you know, you got that persecuted house church in China. doesn't have a sound system, no carpet, no board of directors. It doesn't have large numbers. Is it going to be deficient spiritually because of that necessarily? No way. God could be blessing that church and anointing it and what goes on there as much as anywhere. Or you got some African village church, they just meet under a tree. So we get back to the church is not a building. It's an assembly, it's a called out group of people. You can meet anywhere. In a barn, under a tree. That wasn't part of one of the requirements that you had to have a building with a roof on it. It's nice, but that's not a requirement. Here's this African village church, and they just got their voices. They don't even have any instruments. Is that a requirement? So I'm not saying all that stuff's bad, having a roof, having instruments, but is it necessary, or does it make a church less of a church? If that group of people, Jesus is their head, and they're committed to each other, 
They move in the gifts. They have communion every week. They've all been baptized. God's hand could be on them. And they may be the first ones raptured. Very well could be. So that's what we need to think about. What is a church? And what is our function here? That's what we're talking about. So next week, I want to talk about what is the purpose of our church. What is the purpose of a New Testament church? What's our purpose for being Shelbyville Christian Assembly? And I'm telling you, it's more than three things, but it's not 20. But I want to talk about what is our purpose for meeting here so we have a clear understanding of that. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. And Father, we just thank you once again, Lord, that even to answer the question, what is a church, that you have that answer right in your word and that we can see what the pattern is of a church that is a true church, a church that is headed up by the Lord Jesus Christ and what our involvement and participation needs to be as members. And I just thank you that you've shown us that. And I just thank you that you'll continue to deal with us here and bring us all closer together and help to teach us how to minister to each other, to show true love and concern for one another, and to seek you for the gifts that we can edify one another here, build one another up, Lord, and continue to go out and proclaim the gospel to every creature, Lord. We can see your kingdom grow, and we just thank you that you'll do that for us here, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.